The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida or online at westpines.org. One of the most revolutionary figures in history is this person that really historians struggle with what to do with this particular person. Uh, this person was a teenager, grew up on a farm, was a, was a peasant, and was a young woman. Her name was Joan of Arc. And her story is legendary. I mean, I'd be surprised if anyone in here has not heard the name Joan of Arc before. She is a legendary character. But the, the circumstances surrounding her life are hard for historians to know how to handle. Yet they're very well documented. Many eyewitnesses wrote a lot about her, biographies about her, recorded all these details of her life. Because she is an extraordinary, extraordinary figure. She grew up as a peasant in a small village. And she was incredibly fervent in her faith in God. In fact, the, t- the kids in the village would tease her because she'd spend lots of time in prayer, lots of time with God, and they would tease her. And when she got to about the age of 15, 16, she believed that God placed on her heart, I mean, very clearly she felt like God had spoken to her, that she was supposed to be the catalyst to save her country, France. Now here's what was going on in France. It was towards the end of the Hundred Years' War. So England was invading onto the mainland of Europe in France and with a lot of alliances with some of the nobles in France, they had taken over cities and they were trying to put their person on the throne and establish a presence in mainland Europe. And at this point in the war, France was losing. They were losing control to the English. They hadn't won a battle in about a decade Troops, the morale was low. They were the people in France. They didn't know what, where their hope was. And they're, I mean, they were just a hair's breadth away from losing this battle that they had fought for generations now at this point. And at this moment, this peasant girl, she couldn't read, she couldn't write. She felt like God had put it on her heart that she was supposed to save her country. So she, she told her parents she was going to go visit her cousin. She's 16. She leaves house and goes and visits her cousin. And then she tells her cousin, I need you to help me get an audience with some of the nobles. And so she, long story short, she persistently tried to meet with the noble. She met with, the, with a noble and then she said, I want to meet with the prince, the rightful heir to the throne who's not been crowned yet. And she pushed and pushed and finally she got an audience with the prince and she basically told what God had put on her heart. I feel like God wants to use me to save the country and the prince partly for for lack of any other options, and partly because he was so impressed with her fervor and her faith, he said, okay. She suited up in armor, no military experience, and he lets her lead the French troops into battle. And I mean, imagine these these warriors, lifelong warriors, and they're seeing this 17-year-old peasant farm girl lead them into battle. But she had such faith, such fervor, that when when other generals wanted to retreat, when other noblemen were like, no, we shouldn't go into battle yet, she led them into battle against the English and rallied the troops so much, she became an icon, a legend, and they kept winning battle after battle after battle to the point when when her army would approach a, a French village that was controlled by the English, the village would just surrender. She became an international a national legend, and the English began to fear her. And when she was around 18 or 19, she got betrayed by some French nobles who were jealous 
of her popularity and her fame. She gets captured and she gets turned over to the English. And at this point, the English, through this, this mock trial, I mean, it was the, the trial itself was illegal on so many different levels. They tried her in the church as a heretic, and, when she, was, and she was burned at the stake when she was 19 years old. Now, here's the incredible thing. She was a, became an icon to France and still is today. In fact, here's a, a, a statue of her in Paris. And she is an icon to the country of France. But what's so interesting is beyond just France, historians have gone back and have said, they've theorized um, that if her presence hadn't been there just that moment in France, I mean, most people agree, without Joan of Arc, the English win the Hundred Years' War. See, a couple decades after Joan of Arc died, that was what rallied the French troops. And about 20 or so years later, they pushed the English out of mainland Europe confining them back to their island. Now, here's what's interesting. Historians theorize if the English had won the Hundred Years' War and had established their presence on the main continent of Europe, they would have spent the next several hundred years trying to keep their presence in the mainland and probably would not have had enough bandwidth to to colonize around the rest of the world. So here's what that means. Without Joan of Arc, probably our country would be completely different and may not even be here. She was a teenage girl, peasant girl. She had an f- unbelievable fervor in God. She believed she actually didn't even want to go on the battlefield. And when I say she went to the battlefield, she wasn't just in the background. She was wounded on several occasions and continued fighting. And yet she, with her fervor in God, she's become a legend, has probably impacted worldwide history. Now, she died when she was 19. Here's what I ask you. Was that a wasted life? Was it a wasted life? She stood toe-to-toe with these oppressors in her country, terrorizing the villages. She stood toe-to-toe with her faith in God to this, these tyrants coming into her country. She stood toe-to-toe, and she wrung out her life, sacrificed her life, and God used her powerfully. See, I don't know about you, when I hear a story like that, like a legendary life like that, there's just something inside of me that just, that kind of gets the blood pumping a little bit. You know, there's something when I hear a story where someone just put it all on the line, they wrung it out, they just, they went toe-to-toe fearlessly, there's just something about that that just gets the blood pumping. See, here's what I think. I think there's something inside of us calling us to that kind of legendary life, like leaving a mark behind. And, and there's really, when you look at life, there's kind of like two different tracks. There's two different lanes. There's two different routes. And one is calling to us. It's saying, man, there's something that, is, there's a chord that strikes in us when we hear about a legendary story. It's like, man, that's what I want. I want to wring this out for something bigger than just me and pour it out on the, all on the line. There's, there's that track. Then there's another lane, and and it calls even more powerfully. And it says, look, this life is short. Just get what you can out of it. Enjoy the ride. Survive it with as much fun and joy and happiness as you can along the way. Just try and get as much out of it as you can because it's just a short life. And just maybe distract yourself, numb yourself to the fact that that, uh, life is is brief and that there's pains along the way. So just kind of numb yourself along the way. See, there's two tracks And in our culture, what we've been talking about the last couple weeks is that there's a tyrant in our culture. It's not a person. It's an idea. 
And this tyrant, the doctrines of this tyrant are so pervasive. I mean, this tyrant has been on the throne for probably a couple decades and, and probably a couple generations. And this tyrant, the doctrines of this tyrant, the manifesto of this oppressor is, man, just get as much out of this life as you can while you can. Just try and enjoy it. Try and find some comfort, some happiness, a little slice of, of joy along the way and just kind of survive it. But what we want to do is overthrow that tyrant and live a life that is the stuff of legends. The tyrant's name is materialism. We're going to take a look at a passage in the book of Ecclesiastes that talks about this idea of materialism, and it talks about how to pick a lane and which kind of life we want to live. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, if you would turn there with me. Ecclesiastes 5. As you turn there, let me just give you a little idea of how Ecclesiastes works. If you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, let me give you an idea. This book is written by a guy by the name of Solomon, the famous Solomon, the son of David, the, the historical King David. His son Solomon was in power. Now, what you need to know about Solomon is he was unbelievably wealthy. It's hard to grasp. He's he probably one of the wealthiest figures in history. He was unbelievably successful. He was powerful. He was popular. I mean, he had it all from, from the standpoint of worldly things. He had everything. And he writes this book, Ecclesiastes. He writes it about really the meaning of life, which is kind of interesting when you realize from the perspective he's writing it from. And he opens up the beginning of Ecclesiastes in, in chapter 1. He opens it up and he basically says this. He says, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And he's basically saying, man, everything is just empty. It's all just empty. It's like, it's really dark the way he starts it off. He's like, man, I've got all that you can get out of this life. And man, it is just, it's vain, it's empty. And what he means by vanity is he says, it's like a vapor. It's like trying to grab onto a vapor or a puff of smoke. The moment you think you've got it, you look down and it's gone. So what he does is he systematically, methodologically goes through this book and he goes through each of these sectors of our lives. He says, I want, you to talk, I want to look at the, the pursuit of fame and popularity. I want to look at the pursuit of sex. I want to look at the pursuit of wealth and, and stuff. And he looks at all these different categories and he says, man, in the end, it's just empty. And he goes to this, it's a really dark book because he shows why it's empty and he gets to the very end and he essentially says this, he gives one little tiny sliver of hope. The very end of the book, the last couple verses, he says, really, all you've got is to fear God and obey him. The only choice you have, this whole kind of depressing book, talking about how empty the things of life is, is the only thing you've got is, man, just know that God is God. He's the inventor. He's on the throne. Just know that he is God and, and follow what he says. That's the only little glimmer of hope in this dark book. So we're looking at one of these one of these topics, one of these categories he's looking at, and it's Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Let me read this to you. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. He's introducing this category of wealth, and he says, he says the love of money is vanity. Doesn't say money itself is vanity. He says the love of money. We're going to define that as this term materialism. He says it's empty. He says here's, here's what it is. The love of money. Man, looking for more stuff to make me happy. Looking for more things, more money, more stuff to make me satisfied. 
Man, looking for more things, more stuff, more possessions, more, more things I can buy to make me feel better about myself. He says, man, trust me. He says, it is empty. He says, it's like chasing a vapor. It's like the moment you're like, ah, oh, I got it. And you look down and it, it's gone. Now, here's the thing. What's hard about this subject is probably none of us are thinking that consciously. I mean, probably none of us sat down at the breakfast table this week and you're sitting across from your spouse, you're over a bowl of cereal with your wife and you look at her and says, you know what would make me happy in this world? I just need a new set of golf clubs. That's it. That's what my life amounts to. That's what would make me happy. I mean, we don't actually think that out loud, right? Most of us probably don't sit sit and say, you know what would make me feel better? This is how I know that I would be an important person. A new wardrobe. It just hit me. I put down the spoon. That's it. I've... I've uncovered my purpose in life. If I have clothes, then I will be somebody. We don't consciously think that. But man, that's what's underneath the surface sometimes. It's underneath the surface. And here's what Solomon is saying. He says, sometimes we're working so hard to catch the vapor, to catch it in our hands. We're working so hard to use materialism and stuff to make us happy, to make us satisfied, to make us feel like we're somebody. We're trying to go after it so hard that we never stop to ask this question. Can you even capture a vapor in your hand? We never stop. We're just so busy Going after, going after this. Okay, well, what about the next thing? What about the next thing? What about the next thing? We never actually stop and say, is this even attainable? Can I even get satisfaction or self-worth from this? Because the moment I got it the last time, I thought I had gotten something to give myself happiness. Man, the moment I was like, oh, I'm on to the next thing, on to the next thing. He says, just stop and ask this question. Is it even achievable? Can I even find those things from getting that vapor? And from his perspective, he's saying, no, you can't. He's saying, I've got everything I could ever want and ask for. And you hear kind of there's a pain underneath the surface here with Solomon. He says, man, it's, it's empty. It's empty. All right, let's see where he goes next. I want you to jump down to verse 15. Here's what he says. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Man, Solomon is in a bad mood, okay? Here's what he says. He asks another question. His first question in in verse 10, he's like, man, if you could even, have you ever stopped to think, can you even get it? And then he asks another question. He takes it a little little bit deeper and a little bit darker. He says, and even if you could get it, let's say you could find satisfaction or happiness or self-worth from stuff. He says, which you can't, but let's say you could. Then he asks this, so what? He says, you come into the world the same way you're going to leave the world. He says, we're here for this very brief little moment. He says, we're all, and, and so who cares? He asks this question, man, with the fact of the brevity of life and that we're all staring down death, he says, really, if you could get it, is it even worth it? Not, let alone can you, but even if you could, is it worth getting? He's asking a whole nother level of a question. You, you've probably heard... Um, 
about uh, John Rockefeller. There's two famous quotes associated with John Rockefeller. And give you an idea, you, you may know this, but he was considered by many, like Forbes and other institutions, as the wealthiest man in history, John Rockefeller. We're talking hundreds of billions in today's buying capacity. And, and he was worth so much money. In fact, just kind of give you an idea, like in, in the list of like the top 20, he's number one, and like number three is a guy named William the Conqueror, okay? I don't even know who that guy is, but it sounds like he's got a lot of money, all right? And Rockefeller has even more than he does, all right? And so he's, there's a couple quotes associated with this guy. The first is, at one point, someone asks him, man, seriously, dude, how much is enough? Like, when are you just going to, like, retire and, like, you know, go move to Boca or something? I mean, like, when are you just, like, just going to retire and just call it quits? How much is enough? And you may have heard this quote. What did he say? Just a little bit more. See, we, it's so easy to relate to that. We're not, we're not asking to have, like, Rockefeller's money, and I'd be happy with just a little bit more. And that's what Rockefeller's saying. So his first question, Solomon, is kind of like a couple thousand years before Rockefeller ever said this, is saying, you will never be satisfied. We will never be satisfied. It just doesn't do it. It's like a vapor. But see, here's another interesting thing. There's another a quote associated with Rockefeller. It was after he died. And someone asked his accountant, man, that guy was loaded. So, man, kind of give me an idea. How much did he leave behind? And the accountant said, all of it. Didn't take any of it with him. See, Solomon is saying the exact two things. He's saying, you'll never get it. And he says, but if you did, if you found satisfaction and happiness and self-worth, he's like, in the end, what was it worth? You're not taking it with you. What was it even worth? Well, maybe Solomon, maybe it's just the enjoying the pursuit of it. I mean, maybe even just, that's what life is, is it's the joy of the pursuit of whatever it is that will make me happy and whatever it is that will make me feel like I have some self-worth. But Solomon addresses that too. He says, but here's the problem. All of the, your days, he says, you'll be sitting in darkness. And he says, with vexation and sickness and anger. He says, here's the problem, the pursuit. It's really not that much fun. He says, it's stressful. It's constantly, oh, I've got to keep track of this, and I've got to keep track of that, and oh, no, that person's got this, and I've got to keep up with this person. It's stressful, and, and then the stress is causing me physical harm. My back's out of shape. I've got to go to the chiropractor. I can't sleep at night at this. I've got stomach problems because I'm, so, uh, I'm so stressed out, and then my relationships are sick because I'm so focused on my ambition that I'm neglecting these relationships, or I'm, I'm mishandling these relationships, or my relationships are sick, and then I'm angry because I'm envious because they have that, and I don't, and they have that, and I don't, and he says, man... What is it all worth? He's like, that, was that pursuit even worth it? And you're not even taking it with you. Geez, Solomon, we came to church to be encouraged. I mean, what are you trying to do to us here, man? This is kind of dark. But look where he ends up. I want to read you this verse here. This is Ecclesiastes 5.18. Now, I want to remind you, he's looking at the world from a certain perspective. This book is looking at the world without God. This is looking at the world without Jesus. He's showing you what the world leaves us. It's, it's all that it has to offer. And look what he says in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. 
See what he says? What else can you do? You hear his pain? Can you hear his darkness, his depression? He looks, he says, it's all empty. So here's all you've got in these few tiny little moments that you have in this life. I mean, in these just, the brevity of this life. I mean, what else can you do? Just try and just enjoy what you have while it lasts. Try and take the nicest vacations that you can. Try to, I mean, just see if you can drive the nicest car, the nicest house while you can, buy the nicest clothes. Just live the best you can with what you've got and just survive until the end in these few tiny little moments that you have. He leaves it on just such a dark moment, but when you're tracking with his logic, you say, gosh, I don't see how you could come to any conclusion. How could you come to any other conclusion? He says, okay, you can't get it, even if you got it, it doesn't matter. And the process of getting it is, tears us apart anyway. So just try and enjoy the best you can in this brief little life that you have. And he moves through this book, category after category through Ecclesiastes, and shows how it's just empty. But he gives us one little glimmer of hope at the end, doesn't he? Fear God and obey his commandments. See, luckily, Ecclesiastes is not the only book of the Bible. Luckily, that's not the final word from, from Solomon, the son of King David. You see, there was another king, another son of David, actually a, a descendant of Solomon, who came and he had another word that, that redeems what Solomon is saying. See, here's what Jesus says. He says this, let me just read this to you. It's in the book of Matthew. Here's what he says. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, You know what? If all you had was this earth, That'd be one thing. He said, but that's not all that you have. He said, man, that's just the beginning. He says, that's just the beginning where things can, can break it up and tear it apart. It's the beginning where this is a fragile little life. He says, man, you have an eternity. You don't just have a hundred years on this planet. You have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions and billions and trillions of eras in heaven with Jesus. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if this is all that you have, it's so empty. He's, Jesus is saying, so here's what you do. He says, yes, my, my great, 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 great grandfather, he didn't know what else to say because this is all that you've got on earth. He says, let me finish the thought. This is not all you have on earth because earth is not all that you have. You have eternity in heaven. And Jesus is saying, here's what you can do. You can take all the resources, all the finances that you have. You can take all the things that God has given you and said, you know what? That's my home. That's where I'm going to spend the rest of my eternity. How can I leverage this life, not just try and survive, make it through this life and anesthetize myself, numb myself to the pains and distract myself from this life and just try and get as much joy as I can out of this life and survive and try to get the nicest this and the most luxurious that. He says, don't just settle for that. He says, you've got an eternity coming. He says, live in light of eternity. Live a life that can ring this one out because eternity is waiting for you. 
See, Jesus entered, what, what's, who is this Jesus? Who's this descendant of David? Who's the son of David? It, it is God in, and man in one person. It's God entering into his creation. He's living a spotless life. He dies on the cross to pay for our sins and he rises again from the dead to defeat death and unlocking eternal life. And he's the one that's saying for you, because you have eternal life, live in light of that. There's a, a pastor and author that I have great respect for. His name is Randy Alcorn. And he wrote a great book. It's called The Treasure Principle. Um, it's an awesome book. It looks like that. In fact, we have some in the Resource Center. I, if you haven't read this book, go there after the service and go get it in the Resource Center. We have uh, enough copies. Go get one and, and read this. It's a phenomenal book. And here's what he says in this on the subject. He says, okay, I want you to imagine you uh, have a business trip. You have an assignment and, and it's for three months overseas. And the only reason that you agreed to take this business trip away from your family for three whole months is that you're getting paid well. So you talk it over with, with your family, like, okay, I'm going to do this. And you go for, for three months, you go overseas, and they put you in this little apartment, and it's kind of Spartan, but uh, you're like, you're there just for temporary, uh, temporary amount of time, and you go to work, and you come home every night. He says, what would happen if you started thinking, you know what, I'm living in a dump here, over here. I mean, you know what I'm going to do? I mean, making some money, I'm going to redo the kitchen. Well, I'm in this apartment. I'd like a nice kitchen. I'm going to redo the kitchen. He says, well, would you ever stop and think, you know, it would be nice to kind of redo the bathrooms in here, and maybe I'll, I'll paint the walls a little bit. You know what, I'm not even going to live. You know, I'm going to go find a penthouse here somewhere and, and live here while I'm on this business trip. He says, would you ever think about that? He says, would that be a wise decision? He says, no, of course not. You're saying, okay, I'm only here for three months. The reason I'm here is to send it on home with my family. And here's what he says. Do you realize this is just temporary and this is not your home? He says, this isn't where you're made for. He says, it's your resources are a tool to invest in eternity. To invest in eternity, it's a tool. I want you to hear this, uh, this phrase. If I, if I uh, read you this sentence, what would you think? If I read you this sentence, he has a knife. What do you know about what's going on? Not a lot. I mean, it could mean a lot of different things. It could mean it's, if it's in an, an alleyway, maybe he's got a knife, he's going to attack someone. You don't know. Maybe he's sitting at a, at a dinner table. He has a knife because he's going to butter his toast. Maybe he has a knife because he's a surgeon and he's about to, to b- perform life-giving surgery on someone. When you say he has a knife, you don't know what it means yet. Why? Because knife is just a tool. A knife is really not good or bad. It's just a tool. Now, let me, let me say another sentence to you. You have money. You say, man, actually, you don't know. If you think that I have money, you don't really know me very well at all, actually. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I, I actually, no. Remember, if you, if you remember what we talked about last week, if you're sitting in this room, then we are in the top, easily, 1% to 2% wealthiest in the world. So let's go back. Let's say, we have money. It's not good or bad yet. It depends on how we use the tool. Money is a tool for eternity. And he's calling us to say, look, imagine, look at what it gets you here. It's just, it's not 
this is brief. It's passing by. Invest in eternity. And, and Jesus is saying, man, think in terms. Think over your stuff, over your finances in terms of eternity in every category of your finances. When you think about your family, there's so many different ways you can invest your finances eternally. When you think about your family, you're planning a vacation. Maybe you're already starting to think about, hey, where should we go on vacation in the summer? When you think about a vacation, maybe instead of, okay, what's the nicest or the most luxurious or what's the best? Maybe you think, you know what's the most eternal value for my family is to craft a trip, not where we're all going to be distracted, but we're all going to grow together as a family, whatever that looks like. And maybe the relational work and intimacy that happens in the family, that's got eternal value. Maybe you think through it from that angle. When you think about your marriage, how can we invest? God has given us resources and the most important earthly relationship I have is with my spouse. So God, what's the best use of these finances? You know, okay, if we, we've got these finances and I'm, maybe you're thinking through 2016 budget. Okay, how can we budget in a way that we're, we're investing in our marriage for our intimacy? We're thinking through, okay, what do we, how do we want to grow as a marriage and what is it going to take? I want to invest in that. Maybe you think of your kids. Maybe think in terms of, okay, how am I investing in my kids? And maybe you say, you know what? I'm going to be strategic because I don't want to perpetuate materialism in my kids. And maybe the best way to invest in my kids is not simply helping them keep up with the other kids around them. Well, they have that, and they wear that, and they drive this, and they go here. And maybe it's thinking, okay, how can I be more strategic to eternally invest in my kids? Maybe it's in friendships. You say, okay, you know what, man, how am I, I want to set aside, these are important things in my friendships. How do we take it and think eternal value? What is still going to matter a billion years from now? Or maybe the most obvious. Church, we come together. This is, we meet here in this room, and here's probably the main reason. is because we believe God has placed us in this city to make an impact. We believe we have been placed in a city that is surrounded by hurt and brokenness and pain and millions and millions of people that are facing an eternity without God. And we have linked arms together and we've said together as a church, not on our watch. We've said, no, we are going to together link arms and pour it out for this community that we love because God, you have placed us in this community to, be, to reach out and to be a voice of hope for this community. And so maybe God's calling you to say, you know what, we in all of our families together, we need to invest even more sacrificially in what God is doing here because you know what, a billion years from now, what is going to matter? And God has given us all of our resources, our finances. It's a tool and it's a tool for eternity. Here's what he's asking us, Solomon's asking us to ask a couple questions here. He's asking us to ask the first question, man, Am I so busy chasing after the vapor that I've never stopped and said, can I, even, can I even get it? And then even I could get it, does it matter? Is the pursuit even worth it? And Jesus gives us a better answer. He says, this isn't your home. I've given you this tool to invest for eternity. I want to show you, um, I want to wrap up our time together. I want to show you uh, a painting. And I want you to just kind of take in this, this painting here for a second. It's um, called The Moneylender and His Wife. It's from uh, the early 1500s. It's hanging in the Louvre in Paris. And um, it's, written, it's uh, painted by a guy by the name of uh, Metzis. And he lived in Antwerp. And Antwerp was a, a very busy 
trading a city in Europe. And so there were these money changers, and they made, they did a lot, made a lot of money because of all of the trade from various kingdoms that came through Antwerp. And Metzies painted this, this painting, and I want you to just kind of look at some of the details of this painting. You want, first, I want you to notice the man and his wife. Um, go back one. Go back one. I want you to notice the man and his wife. Look at their clothes. They're, wearing, they've got, they're like lined with fur. You see they're very luxurious clothes. And, and you see the man is counting out the, the money uh, on the table, and there's these other treasures around. And you can see that uh, the, uh, the woman is flipping through a book. But she's not looking at the book. And here's what's incredible. This painting, the detail on this painting is absolutely unbelievable. Um, there's actually, if you, if you looked at that book closely, go ahead and go to the next photo. If you looked at the book closely, there's actually writing in detail. And this is not a big painting. It's a little over two feet by two feet. And there's little writing on there and there's a picture. And the picture on that book is the, is the clue. It's a picture of Mary and Jesus. And so here she is flipping through this Bible or this devotional book, but she's not looking at it, is she? And one of the most interesting parts of this painting is the mirror. And this is, I mean, minute, tiny little detail. It's just profound, his skill. And this mirror, I mean, this is just inches big. I mean, it's so small, but you look at the incredible detail. It's showing, it's almost a portal to the outside world. This, this mirror is reflecting a man who's looking out the window into Antwerp. And you see that there's a man, he's got his hand on the window, and if you could even see even closer, he's kind of frowning. And he's almost like he's pointing and looking sadly out the window, almost to say, this is this city, this is this community. And what's even more interesting is that's actually, many believe, a self-portrait of Metzies. He did of himself in that little mirror. And he's pointing out into the community. Now I want you to go back to the whole image, and I want you to look at some, something really interesting, one of the most interesting details. It's just such a beautiful picture of how something like money is capturing her attention away from, from her studying whatever that book that is and connecting with God. But here's the most interesting detail, I think. Look at the expression on their faces. Are they tantalized? Are they excited? Are, are, are they just overwhelmed by the, by the shimmering coins and the pearls and the jewels and, and the artifacts? No, look at their faces. They're just disinterested, bored, over it. It's such a powerful painting because it talks about so clearly this is not a, just an issue for us today. This is an issue that, that spans throughout humanity, throughout history. Man, something tries to steal our attention from the life that God intended for us, steals our attention, and in the end, we're, it doesn't keep our attention. It just distracts us. It distracts us for a moment, and in the end, it's not something that's very vital to our lives at all. See, there's two different routes we can live this life. There's something that is calling us to live a life that is a legendary life. Something that's calling us, saying, man, you're here for a brief moment, so make an impact. And it's Jesus' words saying, man, I, I, look what I did. I wrung out my life, sacrificed my life to make an eternal impact. And so take up your cross and follow after me. Renounce all that you have. Give it back to God and say, God, use this however you want because I'm following after you. Man, there's this call for living something extraordinary and legendary and leaving it behind because you have eternity waiting for you. But there's something that tries to distract us and it's not even a very good distraction in the end. It's just, you know what, get what you can while you're here. 
numb yourself to the distractions and pains of life. Try and find some kind of happiness in this world. And Jesus is calling us to rise up to beyond that. You know, Joan of Arc was tied to the stake and there were hundreds that watched her as they lit the fire at her execution. And many reported what happened, that she stood there, she never begged for her life. And in the end, she just let out a final war cry. It was her final words. Do you know what she said? She shouted, Jesus. And she stared down death to the end because she was staring at Jesus. Christian. We're not talking about elite Christians. We're talking about just following Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus. It's undistractedly fixing our eyes on Jesus and saying, I am here for a purpose. I am here to wring it out, to pour it out. I am here to to give it all back to you, God, whatever you want for me to do and to pour over every tiny sector, every scent that I have, every part of my life and say, Jesus, it's for you to use. I give it back to you. I will not find any other happiness in anything. I won't find any other satisfaction in anything else. I'm fixing my eyes on you so that you can use me in this world for this brief time that I'm here before I go to my reward. Church, may we be a people together that inspires each other to follow after Jesus with that kind of abandon. Now you might be here and might be saying, look, I I, I appreciate what you're saying about eternity, but I don't even know for sure that I'm going to be in eternity. I don't know for sure that I'm going to have heaven one day when I die. Man, I I don't even, I, I wish I could know that kind of gambling that I have eternity at the end of my life. Well, here's the message for you this morning. It's very simple. It's that Jesus said, man, if you put your faith in me, the Bible says put your faith in Jesus, that he washed you clean before God by his death on the cross, and he rose again, defeating death. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you can know for sure that you have eternity when you die. Do you want to be sure of that today? Do you want to receive salvation this morning once and for all, find forgiveness and salvation through the person of Jesus. You can do that this morning. I want to give you the opportunity to do it right now. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? You're here and you're saying, I want to know for certain that I'm saved. I want to know for certain that if I died today, I'd have eternity facing me can know for certain right now just put your faith in Jesus that he died for your sins and that that he rose again from the dead defeating death you can receive that right now if that's you then pray this prayer after me right there in your seats just pray this prayer God thank you for sending Jesus to die for me even though I don't deserve it thank you for sending Jesus who, who lived a perfect life believe that he died on the cross I believe that he rose again from the dead thank you for saving me I want to follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.